You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You turn now to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read together the first six verses. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we pray that you would grant us illumination in your word and understanding here as we as we work our way through these, these description of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that your word would do its work in our hearts to create within those who have no faith, faith to believe, with those who lack repentance, the repentance to turn from their sin. We pray that you would encourage and equip us as believers, those who have believed, to be encouraged together in the person of Christ and what he has provided for us through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Open our eyes and our hearts to your word, we pray at this time, and that you would be glorified and honored to accomplish in us, according to your will, all that you intend through your word today. May that be so, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's always my goal when preaching through a book of the Bible, as we have been with Hebrews, to when we get to a, a time of the year like Christmas and Easter, to deal with the themes that are on our attention uh, from the very next passage in the book as we work our way through it. And sometimes I've been able to do that, sometimes not. And there are only two times of the year that I ever even consider deviating from uh, uh, the normal study, and that is around Christmas and around Resurrection Sunday. I'm not one given to just grabbing every holiday that comes up on the calendar and preaching a message for that holiday, whether it's Mother's Day or Father's Day or the Fourth of July or whatever. If you thought it took us a long time to go through John with the diligence and discipline that we did going through it by never deviating from it, imagine if we just went off on a rabbit trail with every holiday that came up. But Christmas is a little bit different. Easter is a little bit different, or Resurrection Sunday is a little bit different. And there was kind of an opportunity where I could take something in Hebrews and kind of drag it in and, and you know work with it a little bit and make it into a Christmas message. And I thought, rather than doing that, let's just go to a different passage of Scripture. So that's why we are in Romans today and not the book of Hebrews. Whenever I do this, whenever I go outside of our normal course of study and grab a passage not related to that, but related to uh, the, the the holiday, I like to choose passages that... Sometimes we are familiar with, but we don't really think of them in terms of a connection to the theme that we're dealing with. So in, in the past, we've taken sort of obscure passages from the Old Testament that really sort of are on our radar, but not so much, and we've kind of looked at the context and handled it in that way. And that is the way that the book of Romans is. You, 
I read to you the first few verses there of the book of Romans. You probably thought to yourself, that doesn't exactly sound like fodder for a Christmas message, that we would find it in the book of Romans something Christmassy to celebrate the birth of Christ in the salutation of a gospel letter written to Christians in the city of Rome. And yet, one of the reasons that I try and take some of the more obscure or uh, maybe secondarily related passages and tie them in is so that we can see as believers that when we contemplate the, the doctrines and the issues related to the incarnation of Christ, we don't necessarily always have to go back to Matthew chapter 1 and 2 or Luke chapters 1, 2, and 3. That we can deal with other passages of Scripture and see that the, the doctrines and the truths, the verities and realities of the birth of Christ and the incarnation, they are woven through every book of the New Testament. They're there. What, what we celebrate at Christmas time is the gospel. And so Romans is an exposition of the gospel. So it shouldn't surprise us to find in the introduction to the book of Romans statements that have to do with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and even His birth. Because these doctrines that we celebrate, the gospel, the imputed righteousness of Christ, they're woven all the way through the New Testament. So we can be in books that we don't even think are related to Christmas. You read through Romans, there's no mention of wise men, which weren't at the birth of Jesus, by the way. There's no mention of, of the star. There's no mention of the stable. There's no mention of the virgin birth. There's no mention of any of those things that we typically associated, uh, camels and gifts and frankincense and myrrh and all this stuff. There's no mention of any of that in Romans chapter 1, but there is mention of three very essential and very important things. That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that He was born in the flesh, which was a demonstration of His humanity, and that He was raised from the dead, which is a declaration of His deity. Those three things are in Romans chapter 1. So we're going to be looking today at verses 2, 3, and 4, those three particular verses there, and those three things that we see there concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. He was born in the flesh of a descendant of David, according to those Old Testament promises, and He was declared the Son of God, raised from the dead, again, in fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. So this book of Romans is an explanation of the gospel. Paul, you, you get that in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, I think the word gospel is mentioned several times in the book of Romans as Paul explains all of the essential elements of the gospel. In chapters 1 to 3, we are all sinners condemned under the wrath of God, desperately in need of righteousness. But guess what? Good news. Chapter 4, God has provided that righteousness, and it is on the basis of faith and faith alone. Abraham understood this, which is why it says in the Old Testament that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. David understood this, Romans chapter 4, because David said when he enjoyed the righteousness that God provided by faith, David said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute his iniquities. And then chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8 all describe the various aspects and applications of the gospel. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with a question that is central to the issue of the gospel. That is, who is it that does the choosing and does the saving in this marvelous plan of God explained in the first eight chapters? And then verses 12 through 16 is the application in the various aspects of Christian living. So that's the gospel. In the book of Romans, it's all about the gospel, the need for the gospel, the provision of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, and the application of the gospel. And that's the book of Romans. So here at the very beginning, Paul gives us three statements, three sentences, three facts about the Lord Jesus Christ that are central to understanding and applying the gospel. That Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that He was born of a descendant of David as a demonstration of His humanity, and that He was raised from the dead as a declaration of His deity. So let's begin then with verse two, with that overview of the entire book of Romans. Now, some of you, some of you don't think I can I can preach through large passages of scripture. See, I just gave you the whole book of Romans right there. 
Paul's statement that this righteousness is provided in Jesus Christ, and he begins with Jesus Christ in verses 2 and 3 to explain uh, these issues regarding Christ. He does this in order to show to us and in, in explain to us that, the, that, the, uh, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He does this in order to root or to ground the gospel in history itself. So you'll notice in verse 2, uh, Paul be- begins, first of all, in verse 1 by saying that he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he was set apart for the gospel of God, or we could say the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those three things, a bondservant, an apostle, and set apart or sanctified unto the gospel. This gospel then he explains in verse 2, this God he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's verse 2. God promised the gospel beforehand in the Holy Scriptures through his prophets. And in mentioning that, Paul grounds the gospel in actual history. He is, he is rooting the gospel in the Old Testament predictions and promises of a Messiah. And the very first of those Old Testament predictions and promises is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said to the serpent after the, after the fall in the garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The, the damage done to the serpent would be fatal. It would be a fatal and destructive blow. The damage done to the seed of the woman would be a temporary one, bruising his heel. And that there is a prediction of the, the deliverance and the salvation that was to come through the one whom God promised in the garden. And all the righteous Old Testament saints in the Old Testament, from the time of the garden all the way through until the birth of the Messiah, looked forward to what God would provide for them. That is why Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's why David could be righteous and Noah could be righteous and Isaiah could be righteous and David could be righteous because that righteousness was provided not based upon what they had done, but upon what somebody else would do for them. They looked forward to the birth of Christ. We look backwards to the birth of Christ. But everybody, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, are all saved on the same basis. Faith in God and His His work to give us righteousness in the work of Christ and Christ alone. They looked forward anticipating that one would come who would do for them what they could not do for themselves and that God would credit them righteousness based upon what that future person would do. And so the gospel is rooted and grounded in history, and this is something essential for us to recognize. Contrary to a modern-day heretic who tells us that we should unhitch our Christianity from the Old Testament, that is not true. You cannot unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. If you try to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament, you are left with something that is not Christianity. Christianity is rooted and grounded in the Old Testament promise, in the Old Testament expectations, in all the Old Testament types and symbols and sacrifices and feasts and festivals and in the nation of Israel and in God's electing grace to that nation of Israel. The gospel is the fulfillment of all of that. And we can't take our Christianity, our Christian life, or our morality, or our understanding of Christ, or our understanding of God's will for us, and just unhitch it from the Old Testament like a, like a, like a train engine would just unhitch all of the cars from behind it and then just let it sort of fade off in the background as we go off and do our own thing in the church. You can't, we can't do that. We can't unhitch it. If you do try that, you're left with something that is something other than Christianity. Because Christianity is not a reboot of God's salvation program. Christianity is not plan B. Christianity is not God uh, trying to do something after plan A failed. It's not something that was invented in the ministry of Christ. It was not something invented by the apostles. Jesus was not just a nice, kind rabbi who showed up on the scene and said, you know what, I really don't like the Old Testament. I just, I just don't like the whole look and feel of the thing. Maybe we should try something entirely new. 
So let's do this thing instead. And a bunch of people followed him, and that's what we've decided to jump onto. No, Jesus Christ arrived and said that he was the fulfillment of all that was written in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, if you do not believe what is written in the Old Testament, you will not believe in me. He said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you don't believe me because you don't believe Moses. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. You can't unhitch Christ from the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. That is what Paul means when he says, this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets. Where? In the Holy Scriptures. And that is the true and right and proper view of the Old Testament. Not as something that we need to detach ourselves from, but as divinely inspired and divinely given and divinely authoritative revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is God's Word, it's Holy Scriptures. And all the promises and the predictions of the Old Testament are fulfilled and looked forward to in the person of Jesus Christ. I know that many of you probably saw that interview between John MacArthur and Ben Shapiro that was here a few weeks ago on Ben Shapiro's network, The Daily Wire. If you haven't watched that, I would commend that you, you to do that. Invest the hour in watching MacArthur share the gospel with Ben Shapiro, who is an Orthodox Jew. He wears his yarmulke out in public constantly. He observes the Old Testament. And he has said, and I know this because I've listened to Shapiro's podcast for probably five or six years. I don't think I've ever missed an episode. He has said in his podcast that he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus didn't fulfill any of the Old Testament promises regarding the Messiah. And when pressed and asked, which ones has he not fulfilled? Shapiro would say, well, he hasn't set up an earthly kingdom. He hasn't destroyed all political powers except the nation of Israel. He hasn't reestablished the throne of David. He doesn't rule and reign in Jerusalem. And so he looks to all of the, the, the second coming promises of Christ and says Christ hasn't fulfilled those, and so therefore he can't be the Messiah. And what Shapiro misses is all of the predictions of the Messiah that he fulfilled in his first coming. And it was fascinating to watch John MacArthur relying mostly upon Old Testament passages sit there and explain the gospel to an Orthodox Jew from Isaiah 53 and from the Day of Atonement and from the book of Leviticus and from the Psalms unreal. And Shapiro would have had nothing to say to any of that. And at one point, almost as if he knew, because he had listened to Shapiro as much as I have, almost as if he knew what Shapiro was thinking, MacArthur said at one point, I am a Christian because of the Old Testament. I have heard Ben Shapiro basically say, I am not a Christian because of the Old Testament. That that divide, that, that's right there. MacArthur said it. I am a Christian because of the Old Testament. I look at Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 110, and I see all over the Old Testament Christ. And Shapiro doesn't see Christ anywhere in the Old Testament. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying the same thing MacArthur said. I guess I should say MacArthur said the same thing that Paul said. I am a Christian. I am a Christian because of the Old Testament. Right? This, these things, the gospel which God has promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul can... Paul's fascinating to me because he had read the Old Testament, was familiar with the Old Testament, studied the Old Testament. He was an Old Testament scholar, and yet he persecuted Christians. But then when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, it was it had to have been as if a light went on, and suddenly he saw Christ on every page of the Old Testament. And he realized that what had been promised through the prophets was fulfilled in the person of God's Son. After the resurrection, Jesus took two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Luke chapter 24 says he explained to them, beginning of Moses and the prophets, all the things in the Old Testament concerning himself. Peter, when he preached the gospel to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, said of Christ, of him, all the prophets bear witness. Right? What did Jesus and the apostles constantly do in presenting the gospel? 
They went right back to the Old Testament and said, this is what God has promised and He has fulfilled it. Now, what exactly has God pr- promised concerning Christ? Well, for that, we need to go to the next two points, that He was born of the, of, a, of the flesh and that He was raised by the power of the Spirit. So Paul notes that these promises were made beforehand through the prophets, and these promises, you'll see it in verse 3, are concerning His Son. So the gospel is that which was promised beforehand in the prophets. God predicted and promised that He would send a Savior, that the Savior would come, certain things about the Savior, His his life, his, his birth, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension to heaven. All of these things were predicted in the Old Testament. And so that gospel which was promised in the Old Testament is a gospel that concerns the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is that gospel. Jesus is what is provided in that gospel. And here are the two things, two categories of promises that we can say are fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Number one, that he was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. And second, that he was declared to be the Son of God with resurrection or by resurrection and by power of the resurrection from the dead, according to the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that first category, that he was born according to the flesh. Verse 3, this gospel, which is promised beforehand concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Now that statement that he was born... Uh, we, we can glean from that that Paul here is assuming and talking about the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this concerns his humanity and the fact that he is 100% man. Scripture affirms and teaches the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Therefore, since the children, that is you and I, share in flesh and blood, Jesus Christ himself also partook of the same. He came and was born of a virgin. He took upon himself human flesh. He united himself with a full human nature. Uh, He united himself with Adam's fallen race, being without sin, entirely without sin. He experienced the same weaknesses that we have. uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet he remained without sin. Full humanity, enjoying all that, uh, I shouldn't say enjoying, but suffering all the limitations of humanity without any of the limitations of sinfulness or sinful proclivities, or sinful inclinations, or desires in any way. Completely without sin in thought, word, and deed, and in action, and in every way, completely without a sin nature at all, he enjoyed and was fully a human being, born of the flesh, verse 3 says. He was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. What does it mean that he was born of a descendant of David? Uh, What the prophets predicted concerning the Messiah was that he would be born of David's line, King David. Um, His birth was a fulfillment of prophecy, his virgin birth. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, bear bear a child, and she would call his name Emmanuel. That's what we read at the beginning from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew cites that passage and says that was fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace or Father or Source of Eternity, really, rather than Father, uh, Eternal Father. He's not the Father that was born. It was the Son that was born, but He is the Father or Source of Eternity and of time itself. That's what that phrase means. So that was fulfilled in Christ. And we see that in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, when the shepherds were told by the angels, Today in the city of David has been formed for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord a descendant of David, and he was born according to the flesh. And Paul is not using that term flesh in its moral or ethical sense to describe the part of us that we wrestle with and fight against that is uh, inclined towards sin. He's using flesh in its in its physical sense. He was born and had a real and genuine humanity. He wasn't born a mythical creature. He wasn't born with some sort of some sort of body that was different or other than human. He was born in the way that men and women are born. He spent nine months in the womb, though he was conceived differently. He spent nine months in the womb, 
and then he was born in the flesh. And he had a real human body and a real human nature, a genuine and unfalling and sinless human nature, but a real one and 100% a human nature. So he enjoyed or shared in the fullness of human nature, and he was born of a descendant of David. Look what Paul says there in verse 3. He was born of a descendant of David. Of whom is Paul talking about when he speaks of this descendant of David? It wasn't Joseph, because that wouldn't have been proper to say that he was born of Joseph, because he wasn't born of Joseph. Joseph was not his physical father. But he was born of Mary, who was a descendant of David. So he was born of a descendant of David. And in the New Testament, this is the only indication that we have. Um, this is the most straightforward indication, I should say, that we have that Mary was a descendant of King David. And what the prophets predicted was that when the Messiah would come, he would come from David's line. This was the promise spoken to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was God's promise to David. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. And by the way, Psalm 89 is all about that covenant that God made with King David. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Psalm 89, verse 36. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Then Jeremiah 33, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Those are promises. Now, Shapiro would read all of those promises that I just read to you and say, hold on a second. But Judah and Jerusalem do not dwell in safety. They're not secure. There is no throne of David that exists today. Therefore, Jesus hasn't fulfilled these promises. And yet what Shapiro and other Orthodox Jews fail to understand is that there are two comings of the Messiah. He came the first time to fulfill all of the prophecies regarding his first coming. He will come again to fulfill all of the prophecies regarding his second coming. Paul says in Acts chapter 13, verses 22 and 23, after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he had also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will from the descendants of this man, that is David, According to the promise, God has brought a Savior to Israel, Jesus. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. So the New Testament emphasizes repeatedly that Jesus, when he came, was the, was the, the descendant of David through Mary. In fact, he was the descendant of David in two separate and distinct ways, which is why we have in our New Testament two separate and distinct and different genealogies. We have one in Matthew chapter 1, we have one in Luke chapter 3. And some people look at those two genealogies and they say they are irreconcilably contradictory. They're not. It's just that we have in Matthew chapter 1 a genealogy that traces the lineage of Jesus back through Joseph, his adopted father, to King David. And in Luke chapter 3, we have the genealogy that traces the lineage of Mary, a descendant of David, all the way back to through David all the way to Adam. And so what we have in those two genealogies is two separate and distinct genealogical lines, one traced through the mother to show that Jesus was the physical descendant 
of David through Mary because he was not the physical descendant of David through Joseph. But in Matthew, we see that Jesus was the legal descendant of David through Joseph. And the reason we have those two genealogies is to show that physically he had a right to sit on the throne because he belonged to David's line. And legally he had a right and a claim to the throne because he belonged to David's line through Joseph. So Joseph, being adopted by Joseph, he had a legal claim to the throne of David. Being Mary's child through a physical child, through virgin conception, he had a physical claim to the throne of David. In every way, on either side of his family tree, you could trace it all the way back to David, and that in fulfillment to promise. Marvelous how that works out, isn't it? And there's other details about the genealogy in Matthew, how somebody in that genealogical line was cursed. And so through Joseph, no physical descendant of somebody in that, in Joseph's line, could sit upon the throne. But Jesus was not the physical descendant of Joseph. He was the physical descendant of Mary. So he could sit on that throne. But legally, he had a right to it through Joseph. God worked all of those details out over hundreds of years to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. There are other prophecies related to the birth of Christ. Micah 5 verse 2 indicates that it was Bethlehem that would be the birth site of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was predicted in Isaiah 7:14 that a virgin would conceive. It was predicted in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that this Messiah, this Christ child, would have to go to Egypt and flee to Egypt, which they did, Joseph and Mary did. And it was predicted in Jeremiah 31, verse 15, that at the time of the Messiah's birth, that infants would be slaughtered by Herod. And Matthew quotes all of those passages being fulfilled in the birth details of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is, in every way, fully human. Shares our weaknesses, but not our sinful nature, though he shares a human nature with us. The second group of prophecies that are uh, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ have to do with his death and his resurrection. And for that, I want you to look down at verse 4. He was declared the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. Now, this speaks of his deity, that he is actually the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God by resurrection. He was not just a normal Jewish rabbi who God raised from the dead and made His Son through resurrection. The resurrection did not make Him deity. The resurrection displayed His deity. In the Old Testament, in all the passages that we look, we've looked at in Hebrews chapter 1, you see that the Old Testament anticipated a divine Messiah. Not a Messiah who would just be an ordinary man or a good teacher or just a descendant of David, but one who would share the divine nature. In Hebrews chapter 1, all of those prophetic psalms that we looked at dealing with the coming kingdom and the coming king, they all describe him in terms that are appropriate only of Yahweh. It is Yahweh who sits on this throne. It is Yahweh who is in some way a descendant of David. It's Yahweh who does these things. And so in the Old Testament, we see the anticipation that the Messiah would be divine. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene, he does divine works, miracles. He takes to himself divine names like I am. He assumes of himself divine prerogatives like the ability to forgive sins. And then he predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. And then three days after he was crucified, he raised himself from the dead, which is an action of that only somebody with divine life can do. And so he claimed deity. He assumed the prerogatives of deity. And then in his resurrection, God the Father, by raising him from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit, God, in raising Christ from the dead, validated and vindicated all of His claims to deity. It showed once and for all that everybody who came to worship Christ, and He received their worship, and gladly embraced their worship, and even blessed them for worshiping Him, that that was not, in fact, idolatry. Because in raising Him from the dead, God the Father declared of Him, This is my Son. He is mine, He is divine, and everything He has said and done is exactly truthful. That is how he is declared to be the Son of God with by power with resurrection from the dead. 
And there are other passages or other details of his life which were also a fulfillment of prophecy. Since we're talking about the fulfillments to Scripture, there are some of them related to the death of Christ. For instance, he is betrayed by a close friend. That was predicted. It was typified in, in David, actually. David wrote a psalm where he described that betrayal himself. So you, you actually see a preview of that of that betrayal even in the life of David. And then it is predicted elsewhere in Scripture. It was predicted that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah. It was predicted that that money would be used to buy a field. It was predicted that somebody would gamble for his garments in Psalm 22. It was predicted that he would die by crucifixion, even though the predictions regarding his death were made hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. The description in Psalm 22 and the description in Isaiah 53 and other Old Testament passages describe crucifixion as if as if the authors were watching it unfold in front of their very eyes. The language is fit only for a crucifixion death. And so his death by crucifixion was predicted hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a form of capital punishment by the Romans. That his disciples would flee, that was predicted by the Old Testament, that he would be pierced, that he would die with criminals, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, and that he would rise from the dead. All of those were predicted by the Old Testament. In fact, the resurrection of Christ itself is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic scripture. You see it in Psalm 16, Psalm 22, and Isaiah 53 all speak of the resurrection of the Messiah. And so his resurrection, even his declaration that he is the Son of God and that he is divine by resurrection from the dead according to the power of the Spirit, that itself is a, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and what was predicted uh, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have in him these two natures, that he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, that is his full humanity, and that he was declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead, that is his full deity. We have in Christ these two things together sharing fully all that it means to be human apart from sin, all of the essential elements of humanity, he partook of that. And all that it meant to be divine, he enjoyed that and has always enjoyed that since Jesus Christ, the divine Son, was there before creation in fellowship with the Father. He planned creation. He planned redemption. He spoke and the galaxies leapt into existence. And now today he upholds all things by the word of his power. Full humanity, and full deity in this one person, this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it was essential and necessary that he be fully man in order that he may act on my behalf. Let me explain it to you in personal terms. I needed somebody who could be completely righteous in my stead to live the life that I could never live. So I needed somebody to act as my representative. I couldn't have a bull or a goat or a lamb act fully as my representative to make me righteous. I needed somebody who could come and and be completely righteous and completely sinless to fulfill all of the law of God, to do all that God demanded and to keep that law perfectly on my behalf. That's what I needed. Somebody to act as my representative. He had to be human in order to do that. And he had to be fully man in order to suffer all of the limitations of humanity so that he could sympathize with those that he came to save. So that now in his office as my high priest, interceding for me, he can sympathize with my weaknesses. He knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it means to be tired. He knows what it means to be be, uh, uh, hungry and thirsty and sleep and to suffer pain and the betrayal of friends. And to deal with all of the, all of the realities of, of life in a fallen world, he understands all of those and he can sympathize with my weaknesses. It was necessary that in order to act as my representative and to sympathize with me, that he be full humanity. And that he live under the law of God in a sinful world, a perfect life in order to achieve both of those things. But it was also necessary that he be fully divine. And here's why. Because what he needed to do was to provide righteousness not just for one person. 
He needed to provide righteousness for a multitude of people. So the righteousness that he, the righteousness that he supplies and the righteous deeds that he has done need to be credited or imputed to more than just one other individual. His righteous provision is not a one-to-one correspondence. He stood in the place of one person, but rather it is a one-to-an-innumerable-multitude-of-people correspondence so that he stood and can sympathize with an innumerable company of the elect over all of the ages of mankind. And he can intercede in place of them and act on their behalf and fulfill the righteous requirements of God on behalf of a multitude of people. So what was needed was an infinite payment for my sin and an infinite payment for your sin, all compounded together, an infinite payment for millions of people from all the nations, payment for all of that sin, and one person had to bear it. How is it possible that one person could provide all of that righteousness and payment for sin? It is because he was not just a man, he was the infinite and eternal God. And because he is infinite in his person, infinite in his righteousness, infinite in his goodness, his provision is infinite and it can be credited to people who need an infinite supply of righteousness and forgiveness, and that's us. So it was necessary for him to be human, to sympathize with me and to act in my stead. It was necessary for him to be divine so that he could do it not just for me, but for a multitude of God's elect, for any and all who will believe upon him. That's what was provided in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel. It was promised and predicted through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is what everything in the Old Testament looks forward to, anticipates, promises, and predicts. This is what is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, that He would die in the place of sinners, predicted in the Old Testament, that He would die a crucified uh, death, predicted in the Old Testament, that He would be righteous and holy and provide forgiveness for God's people, predicted in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, that He would rise again from the dead, predicted in the Old Testament, that He would gather together a people from all the nations, Jews and Gentiles, gather them together to be His own, to bow down before Him and to worship Him and adore Him as His bride, predicted in the Old Testament. All of it is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. But now that you know that it is predicted in the Old Testament, I ask you this, is it personal for you? Do you know this Savior? Do you understand and trust the fact that He was born so that you might not die and that He rose again so that He might give you everlasting and eternal life? All that righteousness and that provision and the forgiveness that I've just described, do you have that by virtue of a repentant and believing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're not in Jesus Christ by faith in Him, then you stand under the wrath of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have that righteousness and that forgiveness. And now we wait for Him to come again. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've never repented of your sins, and you've never believed upon Him savingly for everlasting life. You are still in your sins. You are under the judgment of God. You stand condemned even now. And there is no other Savior given among men whereby we must be saved. Nobody else has ever done what He has done. That is why salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. Nobody else has done what He has done. That is, to stand in the stead of men and represent them and to provide righteousness and to live a sinless life and then die as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for a multitude of sinners. Nobody else has done that. Nobody else can provide that. Therefore, salvation is by Him and Him alone. If you are not in Jesus Christ, you need that righteousness and you need that provision of of forgiveness. If you do not have that when you die, you will stand before Him as the judge. So I beg of you, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, embrace Him as the gentle Savior in the manger, born in Bethlehem, 
who offers you forgiveness and righteousness this day, or you will face him as the judge of all mankind when you stand before him and give an account for all of your sins. Come to him in repentance and faith. He will save you. That is his promise. If you do not do that, he will be your judge. That is my promise and his. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the righteousness that you have provided in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All that is necessary for our salvation, our forgiveness, you have provided. And we are a grateful people. We pray for any who are here who have never trusted Christ and have never understood or embraced the message of the gospel, that you would give them a proper fear of God which might cause them to repent and to believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grant to them that fear, that repentance, and that faith that they may embrace the gentle Savior and come and have their sins forgiven and live a righteous life because you have died and made righteousness available to them. Thank you that you provide all of that is necessary for our salvation. Be glorified in the response of your people to this message and to your word. Strengthen and encourage our hearts together as we reflect upon the grace of salvation in Christ, even at this time of year, in our singing, in our worship, and our fellowship together. We praise you and thank you for your goodness in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.